0: The Watership Down podcast is intended for listeners who are familiar with the plot. There will be spoilers. This episode is scripted by Eric Steps, John Ruths and Newell Fisher and is recorded, edited and narrated by Newell Fisher. Hello. And welcome to the Watership Down podcast episode 136, in which having reached the end of the first season of the 1999 TV series, we will be looking at the Warren of Effraffer, both its political significance and its representation on film. Inevitably, this is going to involve political comments that may not go down so well in some parts of the world, which I'm always aware of in a podcast that is listened to in so many nations, but it is unavoidable if this subject is to be be treated seriously. So, to give some context on the backgrounds of the contributors, Eric lives in Germany, John lives in the US and was in the military there, and I live in the UK. I won't try to comment on their politics, but mine are very much left of centre. Just before we begin, I'm still showcasing Watership Down themed art. Again, details in the notes. Please let me know if you'd like your Watership Down themed art to appear as a po- as the podcast title image for an episode, with full credit given. Anyway, let's look at a rather grim Warren. Introduction to Ephrapha by Eric Stepps Watership Down can be well divided into two parts. The first part covers the rabbit's arduous journey to their new home in the hills and their journey to settle there. The second part is clearly the conflict with Ephrapha. In a story that constantly emphasises the rabbit's vulnerability, mortality and role as prey animals, it is all the more remarkable that the story's great antagonist is not one of the Allil, but, but the same species. In a sense, Ephrafa is the last great test of the rabbits of Watership Down to finally assert their new home. In this, Ephrafa offers interesting counterpoints to the Watership Down rabbits, but also interesting similarities. Much like the Watership Down rabbits, Woundwort has been driven from his home and cut off from the rest of his kind by human influence, but his way of dealing with this trauma is different. He does not seek a safe place. He creates a safe place, which is Efrafa and his goal is not only to be safe from humans, Woundward also wants the rabbits to be equal to the allele. The system he creates for this purpose thus consists of control, surveillance and the strictest discipline. For as brilliant as his system is, it reveals a fragility from the beginning, and to overcome this, the rabbits are almost completely prevented by Afrafa from what makes them rabbits. The consequences are overpopulation, dissatisfaction and finally dejection. Yet, Woundwart is too narrow-minded, and therefore therein lies his great weakness to see the flaws in his system. This is most evident when he turns down Hazel's offer that the two Warren should ally rather than fight each other for Woundwortt there is only w- only this one way, and it ultimately means his downfall, and with it the Ephrafer system in its present form. This is where the big difference to Hazel, whose death does not change the continuity of warship down, is revealed once again. End quote. Notes on a Totalitarian Warren, by John Ruths. Ephraffer is an intriguing topic, and one of the most so in Richard Adams' world aboard ship Down. It is a warren like no other. Not a good place to live, yet organised with the idea of preserving rabbit life. Let's dig into this one a bit, and, of course, pun intended. Woundwart had a solid set of experiences that would lead to him eventually designing a warren of his own, so to speak. Having seen his own mother killed in front of him, and having various experiences in other warrens, one would assume that he had a good amount of time to think things through. What would I do if I were in charge? He sort of reminds me of Karl Marx, but also with some sta- some Stalin, in that he not only conceptualises his ideas, but also gets to put them into real practice. Concerning overall organisation Wundwart understood the concept of a term often used in the US Army, span of control. While it is not specifically defined as a, as a so-called doctrinal term unto itself, we nonetheless the use it in many doctrinal manuals. These generally agree that the span of control of anywhere from two to five units is about right. The way that FRAFA was organised and operated supports this pretty well. Four marks, a secret police, wide patrol training, and a council that actually helps govern, creates six subordinate elements. Again, the council is not exactly subordinate to Woundwort like the other areas are, and actually aids him in a myriad of administrative areas. Compared to nearly any other warren, Ephrafer is much more organised and effective in how it operates. It is not only effective, but efficient in many ways. Nearly everything gets reported so that rabbits like the council, Vervain, Campion and Woundwort, get all information possible and can make informed decisions. Consider whether or not you'd think that the catastrophe that befell Sandalford could have happened at Ephrafa. Wide Patrol Knowing that rabbits are generally weak in the animal food chain, Woundwort devised a training system to make them better at things like patrolling, scouting, fighting and working as a team. This of course is the Wide Patrol, and even when one might encounter a very dangerous member of the allele, it is unlikely to lose any rabbits. If any losses do occur, it'll likely not be more than a single rabbit. Wide patrols also perform a very real kind of reconnaissance for the warren and effectively serve as tryouts for the Ausler, and maybe also the Auslaffer. It also gave the warren a frighteningly effective military capability when it came to dealing with other warrens. The wide patrol essentially professionalised what would be considered a handy niche capability in other warrens. Holly was a very good patroller, but it was all due to his own experiences and even his personality. In Afrafer, going on wide patrol exposes you to the experiences of many. The Council Recognising that he can't do everything just do everything, Woundwalt was a fan of having at least one other rabbit between himself and nearly any problem he might face. This is a sound management technique. Does anyone want to intensely manage multiple areas? Better to have selected rabbits to manage subordinate areas. This also entails the collection of information and enables the leader, Woundwalt, to concentrate on making the best decision. The council was the highest-ranking body in Afrafa besides himself, and it makes me think of the USSR's Politburo. Woundwort was many negative things, but he did understand the concept of working smart and not hard. Politics Well, we'll have to mention the council here again. Basically, Afrafa is a totalitarian state with a single political party. I think it matters not how you classify it exactly, but I'd call it a fascist rabbit state. The advantages from an efficiency perspective are easily to see. The disadvantages probably took some time to surface and did not necessarily reveal themselves. Like any other fascist organisation, FF suffered suffered from a very limited quality of life, nearly no individual freedoms, an overall lack of equality and a sense of hopelessness for a lot of the population. This is impacted by trading greater security and trading individual freedoms to facilitate that security. Not real different than Hitler's Germany or the USSR while it was alive. Auslaffer An interesting idea, and based on the need for the Council and Rummort to know and understand what was happening within Efraffer, the Auslaffer concept could also be seen in the East German Stasi, Nazi Germany's Gestapo, and in the USSR's KGB. Similarly, these organisations seek to see members of their own citizenry as enemies of the state, to be guarded, guarded against, and may be terminated. It is also a common thing to develop in a totalitarian regime. However, it was rather unusual in rabbit warrens. Here in the US, the House of Un-American Activities Commission, or HUAC, was unfortunately similar, and mainly a second or third order effect of our fear of communism. Ethics Compared to other warrens, one might say that ethics in Efrafer were very limited. This is primarily because the emphasis was on overall safety and security, with very little given over to things like happiness and quality of life. Given this, ethics will usually take a back seat. Also, compared to other warrens, Efrafer had very many rules and procedures. In some way, these instructions replace ethics by taking away most kinds of individual autonomy. Blind spots and weaknesses. These are many. Expansion is one good example. The effectiveness and efficiency of FFR gives it the capability to expand. However, and paradoxically, it also makes it very difficult to expand. The strong emphasis on security means that digging new runs is painfully slow. What we end up with is an overcrowded warren where the average rank-and-file rabbit leaves a very dull life. Take any society where a greater emphasis is placed on security and you'll also see frustration. In today's world, we need look no further than to states like North Korea, Syria, Iran and China. Others as well, but these are my standouts. In Afrafa, this makes even seeing what is really happening right under the noses of the Warrens' leaders very difficult. The great many rules make those leaders less creative and more stressed about not breaking any of them. Give me too many things to worry about and I'll likely have something very near me that I can't seem to see. Just like in those nations I mentioned, your own people start to become a threat. End quote. Is Efrafa fascist or communist? Let's prize open this can of worms, shall we? At least Kehar would approve. When I first started to analyse Effraffer as a Warren and going through the novel for this podcast, I was tempted to compare it openly with fascism and communism, but swerved that minefield at the time, preferring to just label it totalitarian. However, maybe the time has come to use those phrases. I need to be clear here that the definition of communism I am using here is the popular one that basically means socialism without democracy, rather than Karl Marx's original definition. The definition of fascism I am using is the relatively simple one proposed by Lawrence W. Britt in 2003 in his 14 early warning signs of fascism that appeared in an article in Free Inquiry magazine. In both cases, I am deliberately avoiding the definitions that self-identified communists and fascists would use themselves. John Ruth's mention of Karl Marx and Stalin is especially interesting, because Karl Marx set about analysing a problem, as did Woundward. And it has to be said that it is arguable that they both did so successfully. The trouble came when attempts were made to solve the problem. In the case of Marx, this was the exploitation of the proletariat by the bourgeoisie. And he he did not actually attempt to solve the problem. That came later. In the case of Woundwart, it was the exploitation of rabbits by the Illil. But when the person, or rabbit, trying to solve the problem is a dictator with brutal tendencies, I guess it is never going to end well. In that respect, Woundwart is very much a Stalin. The more moderate effraffer of Campion's leadership after the Battle of Watership Down seems to be run by a more moderate version of Woundwart's original philosophy. And, from what we hear in Tales from Watership Down, it is a success. Could this be paralleled with more democratic forms of socialism and social democracy? I'll leave that question hanging in the air. However, Woundwort also ticks many fascist boxes that are distinct from communism. For example, rampant sexism. The treatment of does in Afrafa is blatantly worse than that of bucks. It seems they cannot join the Owsla, denying them any chance of advancement, and are denied any bodily autonomy when it comes to mating, at least where the Owsla are involved. I could call that something else, but this podcast is supposed to be suitable for younger listeners. Another characteristic of fascism is the supremacy of the military. In Efrafa, the highly militaristic Ausler is far more in charge than in most Warrens, it seems, and the chief rabbit is called a general. This is reminiscent of Hunters that take control of nations and place the military at the top. Typically, this results in fascist regimes. Contrast this with the healthy relationship between Hazel as chief rabbit and Bigwig as captain of Ausler. On Watership Down, the military is subservient to the leadership, and the two are not the same thing. However, one way in which Afrafa is very much not fascist in nature is in its not attempting to use religion to control the population. Indeed, Woundwart does not mention religion except on one occasion when learning of Bigwig's escape. In a truly fascist regime, Woundwart would constantly compare himself to el but he does not. Most of the characteristics of fascism are fairly irrelevant to rabbit society, where there is no press, for example, or elections as such. On the other hand, rabbit society, even in our world, is very communal in nature, though with no economy as food tends to be freely available. In that regard, Runebord's was very much communist, as resources were closely controlled, supposedly for the greater good, though such control inevitably led to extensive corruption, which leads us right back to Stalin. Overall then, in reply to the question, Was Efrafa communist or fascist? My overall response is a somewhat cowardly yes. The representation of Efrafa on film. The evolution of the representation of Efrafa on film is fascinating. In the original novel, Efrafa lies at the fairly nondescript crossroads of two bridle paths near Overton in Hampshire. This is a real place that can be found on Google Maps, mainly because I added it. Such a human design setting for such a security-oriented warren seems a bit strange, really. However, the structure of the Crixa, or cross, formed by the bridleways does allow for an easy separation of the holes of the different marks. I considered visiting the site for this episode, but decided it would be too much of a distraction from the actual subject matter. Watch this space. In the 1978 film, the site, as described in the novel, seems to be fairly well represented, with a lot of ditch-based cover and undergrowth such as would be found next to bridleways. But crucially, at about one oh seven thirty, the camera shot pans down a dead tree, beautifully painted, which stands in stark contrast to the fully alive tree and watership down. Fast forward 21 years to the 1999 TV series and it looks as if this one shot may have inspired the huge twisted dead tree that looms over an Ephrafa that is now based inside some kind of small canyon. This Ephrafa has nothing to do with the actual location. Instead it is arguably a dramatic visual representation of what Ephrafa is actually about, with the tree in some shots even being used as a watchtower by the Owlsler. Rabbits are not known for their tree-climbing skills, and the apparent size of the tree seems to change in different episodes, however, it is effective in image once you accept the abandonment of the original location. Fast forward another 19 years and we arrive at the effraffer of the 2018 Netflix series, which has a post-industrial location, being located in the part-buried ruins of some kind of factory. This may have been partly inspired by the dark haven of the third series of the nineteen ninety nine to two thousand one TV series. Again, its grimness is effective, whatever faults this series may have, and stands in even more stark contrast to the wholesomeness of Watership Down. It has also been pointed out to me after I posted an image of the three Ephrafas on Instagram that the derelict chimneys of this Ephra could be seen as a reference to places such as Auschwitz, where fascist genocide became industrialised. So, over time, the contrast between the wholesomeness of Watership Down and the grimness of Ephraver has become more stark. It reminds me very much of J.R.R. Tolkien's contrast of the Shire with Mordor, with the industrial nature of the latter being further emphasised in Peter Jackson's 2001-2003 to film trilogy. This contrast was a product of Tolkien's experiences in the First World War. Significantly, of course, Richard Adams surfed in the Second World War. I don't want to over this comparison, but it has to be said that this contrast, and in particular its geographical nature, seems to reflect a very British, and possibly also European, sense of otherness. Let me explain. Watership Down, like Tolkien's Shire, is a rural idyll, a representation of all that is supposedly good and wholesome about the land I live in, England's green and pleasant land, as Blake called it, with apologies to the Scots and Welsh among you. In this representation, the ugly industrial other comes from somewhere else. More specifically, it comes from somewhere else to the south and east of that rural idyll. Mordor lay to the south-east of the shire. Ephrafer lies to the south of Watership Down. And, of course, all the parts of the world that some of us in Britain and Europe can feel so threatened by lie... To the south and east. It would be fascinating to know how Adams decided on the location of Ephrafa. What is Ephrafa actually about? Allow my spectrum mind to wander for a while and try to spot some patterns. This cultural fear of things to the south and east goes back centuries, to a time when Christendom, which basically meant Europe then, felt threatened by Islam, and of course the Crusades were a brutal product of that fear. In Britain, more specifically England, the perceived threat of war over the last millennium has come from the south as in Spain and France from medieval times up to the 19th century, and then from the 19th century, as war became more industrial, from the East, as in Germany and Russia. Fast forward to modern times, and we see the ongoing othering of people fleeing war and oppression in parts of the world that lie to the south of East and East of Britain and of Europe. When the continent you live on lies at the northwest of a huge landmass, namely Asia and Africa, and more specifically the island you live on lies at the northwest extreme of that continent, the direction that threats are perceived as coming from really shouldn't be a surprise. But here's the thing. All that industry that for Tolkien seemed to represent the foreign threat started right here, on this island, during the Industrial Revolution. It didn't come from somewhere else. And as for external threat, the British Empire was the largest in human history, at its height, taking in one quarter of the entire landmass and population of this planet. So who was, and is, the real threat? Watt's Zeffreffer is the threat to the south of Watership Down, because for him, the threat comes from everywhere. As George Orwell pointed out in his iconic novel 1984, when we other such threats as woundwort does making out that they always come from somewhere else we ignore our own capacity to be just as much a threat to ourselves and others and then we start to look for the enemy within who may be allies of that external threat because that idyllic warren on watership down could just as easily have become another efrafer no matter how beautiful its setting all you need for an efrafer is some talking rabbits some burrows, and an intense fear of anyone who comes from somewhere else. Next time, having probably lost half our listenership with my political ramblings, we begin looking at season two of the TV series and Watership Down enters the 21st century.